Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Tom Mills from Aston University about his new book, The BBC Myth of a Public Service, which is published by Verso in 2016. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Tom Mills, who is a lecturer in sociology at Aston University in Birmingham, about his new book, The BBC The Myth of a Public Service. Uh, which is published by Verso this year. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This uh, is a really uh, timely book, I think, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. In the UK, there's been a big debate about the future of the BBC because it's um, having its charter renewed. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about the kind of the role of media in particularly uh, politics, but more widely social role of media, given the uh, recent political events, both in, in the States and, and in the UK. So this book, I think, enters these debates at the perfect time with a, with a quite critical perspective on the BBC. And I wonder, before we kind of get into the book, if you could tell me a little bit about where the book came from and, and where the kind of um, the project emerged from. Yeah, sure. So um, I first became interested in the topic, I suppose, um, in the context of the Iraq war. And one of the interesting things about that, that I think, was the first time that that, uh, I became interested because there was a report that came out that was conducted by some uh, academics at Cardiff University that examined the BBC's coverage of the Iraq war. And what it found was that the BBC had been more pro-war in terms of the uh, the voices that appeared on um, news programmes than the other major broadcasters. This is quite interesting. I want to know what was going on um, behind the scenes there, how we could understand the kind of um, culture and practices which were producing this reporting. So that, that, that was broadly what I was interested in. I I started a PhD um, up in Glasgow before uh, the, the crash, uh, the financial crash in 2008. So I, I think I, I started my research, my PhD research, more or less as Lehman Brothers was collapsing. And then I, I so what I ended up doing, um, although initially I've been interested in a kind of institutional account of the BBC with a particular interest in war, um, I then uh, then shifted towards uh, my interest towards um, economics reporting and, and neoliberalism, and that's why I focus on in my PhD. And this book incorporates that work from my PhD, and um, and it covers these these other areas. So it includes a, a chapter on war, um, a chapter on the BBC's relationship with the, the, the secret state. So um, that, that's the context of the book. Yeah, it's quite nice in that respect, actually, that it, it's got a fairly comprehensive take on, on the BBC's kind of social uh, role around things like reporting, but also with that, as you say, you know, kind of war, secrecy, um, economics, bureaucracy, these kind of things. And I think we'll, we'll get into these over the course of the podcast. And, and I think the place to start is with a, with a wonderful kind of phrase – uh, that occurs quite early on in the book it, about kind of setting the record straight about the BBC. Um, and the book kind of positions itself um, in dialogue, but also in opposition to existing academic accounts and kind of official histories. And I wonder, you know, what what's the kind of project to set the record straight and, and, and why do we need to rethink the BBC now? Yeah, um, well, I suppose there's two, there's two aspects of this. There's, there's, first of all, uh, how these things tend to 
get discussed in in public life you know particularly in in journalism and and secondly how we tend to understand it within academia and you know there's different things to say about both um first of all i think in uh in the newspapers within the media itself um there's a sort of excessive focus on the idea of the bbc as being this kind of left-wing organization and that's something i talk about in the book the way in which the right has uh, has mobilized this idea so 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 there's that aspect which i think um is quite misleading um uh, now, in terms of, um, we can talk about that further, maybe. In terms of uh, academia, I think the, you know, the, the picture is slightly more complicated. I mean, the, the existing counts we have, I guess, would fall within several categories. I mean, firstly, there's you know, the journalistic accounts, um, the accounts written by BBC journalists themselves, who tend to have rather idealistic conceptions of, uh, of, the work, of their work and their place in society. And they tend to particularly focus on the conflicts between journalists and, and politicians. And there's also a, a body, I suppose, of scholarly work, which more or less writes in that tradition coming out of less sort of critical journal, uh, journalism schools and, um, and media histories. The, the, the historical accounts, uh, you have uh, more critical accounts, which are very good, which ask critical questions about the BBC and its relationship with the state, its positions on imperialism. Um, many of those focus on earlier periods. Um, and then there are more liberal sort of official histories as well. So uh, Asa Briggs's uh, history uh, and now Gene Seaton, who's now the official historian of the BBC. Um, and these draw on, you know, that they offer a lot of um, insights into the BBC's institutional history. What they tend to do less well is to integrate that within uh, a broader analysis of what's going on in British society. And what I was trying to do with this book is to try and uh, position that uh, culture of the BBC uh, within broader questions about the history of British democracy, particularly the rise of, of neoliberalism. And, and, and the less critical historical accounts tend to mirror that problem with the journalist accounts, that they, that they tend to focus on conflicts between journalists and, journalists and politicians and not ask questions about um, particularly, you know, when those two groups might agree. Uh, and and that leaves out a whole um, broad area of uh, things we should be concerned with. Thirdly, there's the sociological work on the BBC, and I've included it within that media and cultural studies. So um, here, there's some very good ethnographic studies, which I which I reference um, a handful of interesting sociological ethnographic studies, and there's a lot of work on media content. Um, and uh, what I've tried to do here is to is to connect these things uh, to to bring these bodies of work together. So there's one of the problems with the historical and journalistic accounts is they they more or less completely ignore the social scientific evidence on the BBC's actual reporting. And um, I think that has very important implications for how we understand the BBC. So um, I'm drawing a lot of that work and and critiquing, critiquing as you say, as I go through. The, the obvious kind of route in to, uh, to that broad basis for the book is with these kind of key words that underpin how we understand the BBC in Britain through ideas of kind of impartiality or, or the BBC being independent. And you give, you know, historical examples of when the BBC really hasn't been impartial and independent. Um, and in the first chapter, you try and relate the BBC more broadly to um, kind of the British state, um, kind of widely or, or broadly defined. So I wonder if you could talk me through um, what impartiality and independence kind of means and why these terms uh, are both kind of important to constructions of the BBC, but why they might be misleading as well. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, first of all, this notion of independence, you know, is very central to the BBC and, and to the whole idea of public service broadcasting, which is basically that, you know, the BBC is not a corporation, it's not part of the market, um, it's independent of um, economic forces, and secondly, that it's independent of, of politicians and the state, so that it, it operates as um, independently of those of those centres of power. Now, I think if you begin to look closely at the BBC, it's very clear, even from its very earliest um very earliest time that the BBC hasn't been independent in that sort of substantive sense. It's certainly not been independent of the state and, and politicians. And you can see that from day one. I mean, the, the classic um, test of it was in the general strike in 1926. Now, impartiality um, is essentially the, uh, the working out of that in, in terms of journalistic practice. Like how do we report? Who gets to speak? And the rest of it. And the idea is of that is that, yeah, the BBC will independently and impartially report some things without letting um, particularly interest encroach on, on how, it, how it reports. Now, to take the example of the general strike, you know, the, the, the founding father of the BBC is first general manager and then, um, and then Director General John Reith said that the, the government could trust us to not be impartial. He's very explicit about that. Um, and he also said that the BBC was not independent during general strike. So that was that was the BBC at, at its very beginning. Um, and then the, the question then becomes, OK, well, has the BBC become more independent and more impartial? And the answer, if you look at the evidence, is that, um, it, it, it has basically tended to reflect the interests of powerful people in society. That the Westminster, Westminster and the, the, the political elites tend to define the um, the basis of um, political discussion. And as since the 1980s, particularly, you know, the BBC has been more um, incorporated into the market, and that's something I talk about um, quite extensively in the book. So th these kind of key. Measures these, these way which which we understand the BBC, which are very central also to how journal BBC journalists understand themselves. If you actually look at the evidence, you find that um, it's not meeting these key um, these key kind of uh, tests of its own of its own role. I mean, one way that this occurs um, is, and you discuss this in chapter two, is the really you know quite explicit relationship between. Britain's secret state, state its uh, intelligence services, and the politics of BBC staff, particularly in terms of betting BBC staff. And, and it's really interesting in that second chapter because um, impartiality or independence would have us uh, think that the BBC is an institution that, you know, is kind of resistant to outside influences, you know, kind of cautious when um, confronted with demands from, you know, intelligence services to vet staff or, or these kinds of things. But actually, um, you make the case and, and, and the argument that what's really going on here is the BBC encouraged uh, a relationship with Britain's secret state and, and you know, kind of welcomed um, much more extensive um, practices such as vetting. So I wonder if you could um, lay out, you know, what that relationship is, what those practices were, and maybe some of the kind of, you know, uh, consequences of um, that relationship up to the present day. 
Yeah. So uh, basically what happened with this vetting, um, which went on at the BBC for 50 years, was that the, the BBC at the most senior level had had these um, fairly informal contacts with um, MI5, the, the secret service, and um, sorry, security service. And, and they had initiated this secret program uh, whereby staff who had any involvement in editorial decision making or or broadcasting of any kind had to be approved by MI5 and their, their files would go uh, from the BBC to MI5 and then back again and um, uh, an employee at the BBC would stamp them if they were deemed to be um, to be subversive. So essentially what this meant was um, if, you, if your politics were deemed to be unacceptable or too, um, generally too left-wing, or um, the secret state, then you couldn't, you wouldn't be employed at the BBC. Now, this was discovered in um, 1985 by a group of observer journalists, and the way that it had been understood at the time was, yes, more or less that the secret state had uh, had uh, restrained the BBC, that it had uh, enforced this program, and actually. The files that we have, which are a mix of files which have been uh, made available to the official historian of um, MI5 and the BBC and some other files which were obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, show fairly unambiguously that what in fact happened was that the um, people at the senior level of the BBC had been in touch with MI5 and they'd reached a sort of mutual understanding that this would be in the interest both of MI5 and the BBC. And and, and over several periods, uh, MI5 tried to draw back from the practice of vetting and then the BBC pushed back and, and, and tried to expand it. So it, you get a complex picture here where the MI5 becomes useful to the people at the top of the BBC hierarchy in terms of managing... Um, the political nature of its content, which is part of its own relationship with um, the political elites, and uh, we, but at the same time, which isn't known to the majority of staff. So this is one of the things which comes up in the book again and again, is that if you start to think of the BBC as this kind of single organisation, you actually get a fairly... Um, very, a limited picture of what actually, what's actually going on, because what what actually seems to be the case is that uh, there's uh, struggles within the BBC uh, over how impartiality in these ideas get, get to be defined, and um, during periods of political stress, you see this kind of um, cohesion between the people at the top of the BBC and the people at the top of other institutions, particularly uh, Whitehall and, uh, and, and Westminster. Um, so, uh, again, you, you see a similar, um, a similar pattern emerging when it comes to war. You know, the, B- the BBC has this kind of um, institutional interest in appearing to be independent of the state, and the state has an interest in the, or the BBC also appearing to be independent as well. And you get this kind of meeting of minds at the um, at the higher level. Yeah, war reporting, foreign policy reporting, and the BBC's relationship with with Whitehall, I think, is is crucial here. And it'd be good to um, to know how that relationship kind of sets the terms um, for BBC reporting. Yeah. Um, so the, the two major conflicts which I talk about in the book. I mean, I talk a bit about um, about the Second World War and um, how that relates to the general strike. But the, the major periods of, um, of of political crisis in in Britain and the, the BBC, uh, the American-led invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three, and the Suez Canal crisis. Um, which uh, in nineteen fifty six is it? I think, um, or is it fifty eight? 
Um, in any case, uh, the, the these are the two kind of celebrated examples of the BBC's independence. And um, because what happens there is that the the, the higher levels of the BBC leadership um, come come into a very bitter conflict uh, with with Downing Street over its reporting, and and, and over and, and in the case of Iraq, uh, there was a very um, there was a report by uh, Andrew Gilligan, who was then a journalist on the Today program, which is Radio BBC Radio Four sort of flagship current affairs program, claiming that Number Ten had set up this dossier this case for war and the conventional kind of um, spin on this um, which I, is kind of intuitive is that the uh, the BBC had been reporting um, independently and it was attacked by the Labour government uh, over that reporting and it was it was basically cowed by the um, the state and uh, that's broadly speaking correct but again if you look very closely um, a slightly more complicated picture um, starts to emerge First of all, the BBC's reporting was in any case, and I alluded to this earlier, was in, it was in any case not um, in any way critical of, of, um, of the government's policy. They were very favourable in terms of how they reported. It, d- it doesn't mean that they always completely echoed the case for war, but that was overwhelming what, what, what defined um, BBC's reporting. Secondly, um, it... it the, the, the people who were involved in, in this report, John Humphreys, who's still on the debate program and Kevin Marshall as an um, editor uh, had been in touch with with MI6, the secret intelligence service, um, before they ran this report and they were being briefed by the um, by MI6 uh, that, and they were told that uh, they were worried that they wouldn't find um, weapons of mass destruction and at the same time they were being briefed by um, members of the cabinet and so on. So they have these strong uh, sources within the British state that are telling them that something's gone awry here, that the that the case for war um, wasn't watertight, and that's what then gives them the confidence to um, to run the uh, the famous report, which claims that Downing Street sex on the dossier. So. Um, it, it slightly complicates the picture again in terms of how the BBC is, re- is relating to the state because in the case of, um, if you look at it very nan- narrowly between in terms of um, Downing Street and political parties, it's very clear there's a political conflict going on. If you take a broader sociological understanding of um, the British state, you can understand this in terms of um, elite dissent and a, and a lack of and a certain anxiety within the British state, which then becomes reflected in BBC reporting. So I think it gives you a different understanding of of, what, of where the BBC fits into that picture. Uh, the other element which is worth mentioning is, um, you know, the personal relationship between people at the top of the BBC and the people at the top of the British state, that is to say the politicians and, and the rest of them, because the people who get who lose their positions... Um, Gavin Davis and uh, and Greg Dyke were both very close to um, to Tony Blair and and Gordon Brown. You know they were they were political appointees who were part of the um, sort of New Labour um, terms, if you like. And you can see the same thing in the case of the BBC during the Suez Crisis. The, the chairman was was very close to um, Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister, and there, there's this kind of uh, extensive formal and informal connections between people at the top of the BBC and the top of the British state. Yeah, this kind of, I mean, I, I think of it as the kind of class basis uh, for the BBC. Um, really, just to question some of the um, kind of classic critiques of the BBC, that it's a, a left-wing uh, organisation. And I, I wonder if you could talk through the sort of the politics of the BBC in terms of 
um, right-wing critiques of it, but how this might relate to precisely that kind of set of relationships uh, you've drawn around the Iraq war and the Suez crisis. Yeah, so uh, I mentioned this earlier that, you know, the kind of common sense around the BBC is that it's a, it's a left-wing organisation. I mean, the, the politics of the BBC has always been this kind of um, very hotly contested. I mean, for obvious reasons, if you've got um, competing factions within the, you know, the political elite, they're trying to um, influence reporting to their own advantage. So, you know, na- naturally you're going to have this kind of um, contestation around... Uh, around how party politics is reported and how policy is reported. Um, but there's kind of a um, marked shift in the, um, in the 80s, particularly as, as Thatcherism starts to take off. This, when there's this kind of mobilisation of the idea that the BBC is, um, is a left-wing institution. And what's interesting about this is that in the earlier period, in the 1970s, it was, it, it was kind of the conventional wisdom was more or less that the BBC was kind of a small C conservative organisation in, in the ways we've been discussing. It was very connected to the, the, the British state and the broader establishment, which I think is a much better way of understanding the politics of the BBC. But what starts to happen is that as the, the new rights, the Thatcherites, um, start to try and shift British society uh, rightwards, there's these very... Um, aggressive um, political campaigns that take place over the politics of the BBC and at the same time the the, the, uh, the policy agenda around broadcasting and around media um, has a marked shift in a, in a neoliberal direction so what the what what, what this amounts to, I think, is, is an attempt by a particular faction of the elite to push, to reshape British society in a certain direction. And from their perspective, you know, the BBC had more or less um, internalised and taken for granted some of the um, the culture of, you know, the post-war consensus, the, uh, you know, the sort of uh, the Keynesian kind of um, corporatist approach, um, which which is which are characterised characterised British society from 1945 to broadly the mid-70s and, and into the 80s as so certain um, assumptions about the role of trade unionisms, for employment class and, and all of the rest of it. And the, and the BBC was bound up with that. You know, there was a there was a clearly a programme to transform the BBC and shift its culture. And that's part of what I talk about um, quite extensively in the book is how the BBC itself was transformed in the neoliberal period, you know by the neoliberals. But the the key thing about this is that, you know, the BBC was always part in class terms, you know, it was a a middle-class organisation, I I mean, in terms of its kind of culture, but also, you know, it was broadly um, small-c conservative in the sense that its its staff were being drawn from that particular strata. It was, you know, heavily orientated towards um, official politics. I mean, if that's the kind of uh, class formation for the BBC, what are the techniques, the kind of management, administration, bureaucratic techniques uh, that have transformed the BBC uh, since the early 1980s that have you know, kind of reflected that sort of um, neoliberal faction within elite dominance of British society? Yeah, so... Um, um this sort of starts around the um, mid-1980s. I mean, Thatcher and uh, the people around her are sort of agitated for the BBC to have um, to take advertising, which was, you know, seen as a way that it might be shifted in a more um, business-friendly direction. And she appoints... Um, 
she appoints this guy called Alan Peacock, who is at the Institute for Economic Affairs. It was, you know, the foremost neoliberal think tank um, in the UK to head an inquiry into into the funding of uh, the BBC. And the hope is that they will say uh, the BBC should take advertising. They don't actually do that. What they suggest is that we the, 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 the sort of ecology of the British media needs to shift into a more consumerist direction. And they they leave the licence fee as it is, and, uh, and uh, they don't recommend advertising. But what they suggest is that the BBC should um, commission content from, from the private sector and that this will um, introduce sort of uh, a step towards the, a more neoliberal of broadcasting um, so there's that in the background and then there's not really uh, at the same time there's lots of attacks on the BBC in terms of you know its funding and its efficiency and all of the rest of it which was very much part of how you know the neoliberals mobilised against the social democratic state um, but it's not really until the um, 1990s with the arrival of uh, Director General John Burt uh, where the, a, a real radical transformation happens in the BBC. And what Burt does is he arrives with this notion that he wants to shift the BBC away from this um, social democratic post-war consensus to come to terms with fatrism as he himself says it. And there's two elements of that. I mean, he, he pushes uh, more business reporting. Um, he he abolishes some of the social democratic patterns of reporting, but um, he brings in a particular managerial model um, called producer choice, which was essentially an internal uh, market, which which would uh, increase business values at the BBC, but at the same time also in, integrate it into the uh, into the capitalist market, which would uh, basically meant that you had to buy and sell programmes within the BBC, um, that a market would be created, which would allow the BBC to compete on a level terms with uh, private providers, and importantly, um, would the and this is connected to this uh, uh, initiative that comes out of the Peacock report, which says that the BBC needs to um, needs to bring in uh, a certain proportion of its programming from the private sector. So the effect of all this is that the BBC becomes much more um, managerial and more business orientated and, and more driven towards um, that kind of culture. And this is this is something which is happening across the uh, the public sector around this time that. Uh, wasn't quite identified for what it was, which was really a sort of institutionalised form of neoliberalism at the British state, partly because people tended to see neoliberalism as being this kind of free market model and then to see the kind of um, initiatives that were being in- introduced at places like the BBC or the NHS and not see them as being part of that same project because they didn't seem to be um, free market ideas. But, of course, we now have a much more... Um, sophisticated understanding about what neoliberalism was and recognised much more broadly what was then called the new public management um, was very much part of that um, neoliberal vision. Let's bring it all together then and think about economics reporting Um, because I think that penultimate chapter in the book um, really does kind of um, coalesce these themes together to give us a case study of both the kind of the transformations at the BBC, its long-standing kind of historically grounded problems, and then the social consequences of this. So, um, how has economics reporting changed? Um, how can we relate this to the kind of broader social issues, um, such as you know strikes, um, and then these kind of political programs, particularly privatisation, um, that forms the backdrop for the kinds of reforms you've been talking about. 
Yeah, so, I mean, this is a very long process that um, stretches out for the whole of the neoliberal period, you know, to Thatcherism and then then particularly to um, the period from around uh, the the ascension of of New Labour, where the BBC's reporting practices have changed really quite dramatically. Um, In the 1970s, the uh, reporting of business was more or less the responsibility of the uh, labour or industrial correspondent. And they were particularly orientated towards uh, what was going on with the trade unions. And there's a, some very interesting work from around that time, which was looking at how um, the economic crisis of the 1970s was reported um, in terms of this excessive focus on the unions. Um, and, you know, the unions are seen as basically, um, from the perspective of being an economic problem, particularly strikes. But um, what at least happened was that the BBC had people there who were experts on the unions. They um, they they had relations with uh, with those um, institutions, and they also understood uh, Britain as being um, a country with with workers in it. You know, and that was reflected in the BBC's reporting. And what starts to change is that, uh, first of all, after in the aftermath of the miners' strike and, and privatisation and the rest of it, and, the, and particularly the arrival of uh, the BBC of um, John Burt when he headed BBC journalism um, in 1987 after the, uh, the Director General Alistair Milne had been uh, forced to resign by political appointments on the, uh, the Board of Governors, is that reporting starts to shift in a much more um, business-friendly direction. The, the BBC starts to bring in uh, people specifically to report on from a market perspective and particularly to report on economics and business. And this starts to proliferate as the as the um, the, the uh, Labour correspondents start to become much more marginalised. And then by the time you get into the 1990s, the Labour um, correspondents have more or less disappeared. Um, some of them are sort of summarily fired, which is uh, something that I recount in the book. And there's this kind of explosion of um, business and economic reporting that takes place. Um, there's there's sort of two elements to this. I mean, one side of it is the more sort of technocratic economic reporting. Uh, now, John Burr, when he becomes director general, he appoints this guy, Peter Jay, to head his economics reporting. He's an old friend of his. He was a very important figure um, in popularizing monetarism in the 1970s and, you know, was close to Friedman and um, and John and John Bird himself uh, was used to lunch at the Institute for Economic Affairs. So he was a, you know, pretty explicitly a, a neoliberal um, and, and a laborite. Um, like um, like John Burt, and he heads the BBC's economics reporting, and then and then uh, at the same time as you get that more sort of technocratic, um, high-minded economics uh, economics news, you have these kind of po- more populist kind of business programs that start to emerge at the same time. This, and the BBC has this kind of idea that you know it needs to be sensitive to this sort of flourishing of popular capitalism that happens around Big Bang. That's the deregulation of London's financial sector and the privatisation of the formerly publicly owned. Um, utilities and that program that programming really grows um, in the 1990s and these become consolidated into one unit um, towards the end of the 1990s and with the arrival of uh, of Greg Dyke as director general in 1999 um, he really pushes um, business reporting up the agenda and then what he does is he, he appoints this guy Jeff Randall um, as uh, as a business editor so the, the idea here was that by this point 
the, the, the complaints come from the right that the BBC is reporting too much from the perspective of, of consumers and isn't sensitive to the needs of business. And we need to understand, you know, Britain as a nation of shareholders as well as consumers, right? So that starts to proliferate enormously. Um, business news comes up the agenda. And then by the time we get to uh, the economic crash in 2008, these are the voices which are basically defining how what happened is understood. And there's some interesting work on that. And you look at the BBC's reporting, and one of the kind of ironies of this is that when neoliberalism seems to, co- to, to collapse in 2008, that's the point at which you know, neoliberal, basically neoliberal or neoclassical um, ideas about how the economy should should function just sort of come to the fore at the BBC. So it, it, ironically, what it, what doesn't happen is that these ideas start to be questioned. I mean, all of the institutional changes are there. Um, people like Robert Peston um, come in and become the dominant voices. And by that point, it's institutionally been the BBC's DNA to, you know, to, to approach business in a, as a kind of, you know, almost like a technocratic kind of group um, rather than a particular interest. So there's a, there's a long-term shift that takes place from the idea of business as a particular sector of society with a particular set of interests um, towards um, business either uh, as not being an interest or as even a sort of catch-all term for all elements of economic life. And what falls out of that is any understanding of um, of the public as as being workers and as that having a particular set uh, of interests, or as business as a particularly powerful set of um, uh, of economic actors, which are able to influence policy and, and influence politics, which is of course what's going on in the background with this neoliberalism, you know, this, this market idea, um, is that the state has been gradually um, eroded and become much more business orientated and um, and what what went on at the BBC in terms of both its culture and its reporting mirrors that kind of process The place to conclude I think is what should we do about it then like what is worth kind of defending from the BBC and, and how can we kind of save what is worth defending given that your conclusion points to the idea that the BBC is not actually impartial, independent, loyal to democracy, but actually is loyal to the political institutions of the British state. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth saying, because we haven't so far, you know, that the BBC is a much broader institution than what I talk about in the book. I mean, the focus is mainly on the BBC's um, journalism, which is, of course, only one element of what it does in terms of its, you know, cultural production. Um, so it's worth bearing that in mind in terms of how this is, you know, influencing the nature of the discussion. I mean, in terms of what's worth saving in the BBC, you know, I think these um, these values in terms of the BBC's independence and impartiality are very worthwhile values. You know, they're not anything which I think we should necessarily dismiss dismiss lightly. I don't think we should take them as face value. You know, I mean, I, th- I think in some ways um, they're very. Uh, uh, they're very vague concepts, but they do they do embody a certain um, certain principles, which I think are very important. Which is that in order for democracy to function, we need to have um, institutions which are able to um, find out things about the world and and, and report back and to report li- reliably on that and educate um, and ha- assist the public in their understanding of of decision making. I think all of that is 
it's very worthwhile. Um, I think the the difficulty of uh, how we've approached the BBC is partly that we, it's been very difficult to even have a discussion about what the BBC is, partly because of what's gone on historically with the BBC, with the, uh, the, the threat to it from the right, the gradual erosion of those kind of um, values and the fear that you know the BBC will more or less disappear and maybe end up we end up with something like um, Fox News or a, a broadcasting version of you know uh, of News International and, and the Sun and, and all the rest of it. So I think the I think the question has to be first of all you know let's have a discussion about what we want from the BBC based on what the BBC actually does rather than what we would what we imagine or we would like it to do and then secondly how might we reform the BBC in a way which would which would meet some of those values um now when it comes to that question I think you know if you look at the history and you look at some of the things that I talk about in the book I mean some very obvious things would, I think, occur to you. Uh, first of all, it would be to try and reform the institution so that to take it away from the political influence of the state. So to try and find ways of uh, removing some of those levers um, of elite influence, particularly over the BBC's funding, over the appointment system and and, and the, the charter renewal process which we've just gone through and the rest of it. And the second is the question of, you know, how, how the BBC's institutional culture is... Uh, in terms of its journalistic practices take place, I think it's, a, it's, it's another important question. So we could we can remove those um, elements of political influence, but I think we need to be thinking much more ambitiously as we're going into a sort of a post-broadcasting age about how we would like to structure journalism. And here, here I think it's important that we we will we start to think more democratically, not only about how the BBC is run, but may, maybe how the journalism is being performed as well. And I think there's lots of opportunities there as the technology starts to develop for um, more substantive public involvement in in the BBC, perhaps in terms of its its budgeting, in terms of the sorts of things um, it reports on, and um, and yeah. One of those um, elements has been things like discussed by uh, Dan Hind over um, public commissioning. So I think these are all things which we need to be thinking about. But the I think the question has to be whether simply defending the BBC um, as it is, which has been the sort of uh, basic position of the left and of liberals um, in response to the threat from the right, I think it's it's basically got us nowhere. And what we've seen is this gradual erosion of um, these values, which, as I describe in the book, were never really very substantially, substantially lived up to, even in the social democratic period. But as we have this drift um, rightwards, this erosion of um, democratic institutions, I, I really can't see um, the BBC itself as being institutionally able to reform itself. And eventually it's not going to be able to substantively perform, um, you know, its uh, its status function in in any in any sense. You know, that's uh, we're we're seeing this, yeah, gradual erosion, which has been intensified um, as a result of the current charter renewal process. In terms of your own work, are you sort of carrying on working on questions about the BBC, media regulation, the sociology of media, or are you kind of doing completely different things now? You've kind of I guess sort of settled accounts with uh, with the beep. Well, I'd like to do a bit a bit more publishing um, around the BBC, so uh, I've got a bit more um, writing to do um, on that. But uh, that will be the end of my. I expect I don't know. It will be for the time being anyway. The end of my um, 
my BBC project. I've got the, the couple of things that I'm working on at the moment um, with, a, with a former colleague of mine at Bath University, David Miller, um, is, is first of all a project on terrorism ex- experts, um, looking at how um, how people who appear in the news commenting on terrorism, uh, their particular connections to uh, think tanks and, and the state. So there's that there's that work. Um, and I'm also doing some work on Islamophobia, which is looking at how Islamophobia is a, as, a, as a set of, 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 first of all, state practices, but also influenced by um, what we call social movements from above. So that's to say uh, movements made up of elite political actors. So my, my research interests are broadly in uh, you know, political sociology and the sociology of communication and, um, and, and, uh, and expertise as well, and, and, and elite social movements, and you probably see some of that um, coming across in the approach I take to the BBC. So that's the immediate direction that I'm taking that in. Uh, my, my main interest, you know, is, is really in a, a political sociology of, of elites. So um, that, that's where, uh, and with a particular interest in, you know, communication and, and media, which is where this book um, fits into that. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Tom Mills from Aston University about the BBC Myth of a Public Service, which was published by Bursa. 